Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I imagine that for many of us, this is a familiar story. This is a familiar parable of the prodigal, the lost son, that one who left and and came back and was actually warmly received. It's one that many of us can relate to, uh, some of us all too well. Perhaps uh, there's a different twist on this story, which maybe we haven't seen. So we're going to we're going to, and, and we're really covering too much for one uh, sermon, which is not uncommon here. Uh, we really need three sermons on this. Uh, there are three uh, scenes, if you will, that we're going to look at. And I've broken them down for this three, but we're just going to have to like, you're going to have to listen quickly because we got to move. Um, and I'm not going to do each part as much justice as we could. But there's first the rebellion of the younger son. Then there's the reception um, and of, this, of, of that son. It's this lavish grace of, of God the Father. So there's the younger son uh, character. That's a scene. The, then the scene focuses on the love of the father. And then there's this older brother that the last scene focuses on. Those are what we're going to, and we're going to look at each one of those. But it would be nice if we had time to do a sermon on each one, on each scene. But since we don't, we're, uh, we're, we're just going to jump in and see what we can cover. So uh, this is, the, and this is where it's familiar terminology to us as the prodigal, the parable, the prodigal son. I would suggest a parable of two lost sons. So there's not just one lost son here. There are two. So we're going to look at that. Um, and I also wanted to set the stage again. Last week, we talked about the first two parables. So we began in, in chapter 15, verse 1. And there's a, the, this chapter is a neat chapter. There are three parables of something lost and then found. So the first parable was about the lost sheep, and the shepherd goes after him. The next one was the woman with the lost coin. She goes after it. In each case, they, they, uh, the thing was lost. They searched, then found it. Then there's a celebration. And so this is leading us into, the, into today. But I, I want to revisit something we talked about last week so we understand the context of these parables. So then in chapter 14, the whole, the whole of 14 seems to be a... Uh, dinner party at a Pharisee's house, at one of the Pharisees' house. Jesus was invited. They're lounging at these tables, and he's uh, harsh with these Pharisees. And it's interesting, those who come to Jesus. So there are the religious of the day, and those are who he's harsh with. And then the irreligious of the day, those tax collectors and sinners that we talked about last week, those are the ones who continue to come in. And so I painted the picture last week that he's at the end of this um, banquet or this feast or this dinner. And if you'd been in attendance in the dinner, my suggestion was you might be looking at your watch and thinking it's time for me to leave. Surely I've got somewhere else to go. I could go home and check my cows or something. 
because it would have been a very uncomfortable place if you were one of the Pharisees in this setting for all the things that he had said. But while this is going on, it gets even more uncomfortable as these tax collectors and sinners start coming forward and they come gathering round Jesus. And it's interesting that those who are irreligious are attracted to him. And those who are religious wanted nothing to do with him. And they wanted nothing to do with the irreligious. So that's, this is still the setting. That's, that's where the two parables last week, this is, and I said he's addressing the, the, in one way, he's addressing the new folks who've gathered around the tax collectors and sinners, but he's also, at times, addressing those who are the scribes and Pharisees. And so I, I imagine that he's, he's talking here at one direction to the tax collectors and sinners who'd gathered around, and then at times he turns and says some scathing things to the religious people whose house he was in. So this is the context for where we're going. So this is the same thing we're seeing today. And he just he, he's, he's finished those two parables, and he's moving into this one. Look with me in verse 11. We're going to look at the, bro- the younger brother's rebellion to start with. Verse 11 says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, this doesn't strike us, probably, harshly. Um, there's a context for this. And in, in, this, in this world of Jewish people, there's great identity tied to the land in which you're farming. And it comes from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. It's like the people actually belong to the land. We, my, my, my parents uh, died, and we sold our family farm, and neighbors couldn't believe that we were selling our farm. So there's, there's still, for some people, if you're a city boy, city girl, you don't relate to this. But if you were a farm person here in West Virginia, you can relate to this, perhaps, that there's this identity that that's the Dawkins place. It became the Sally place. We were the same family. But now it's some, it's, it belongs to somebody outside the family. That's, that's, that's just not good in some people's eyes. We, did, we, we had to do what we had to do. It, and it has been a very good thing for us. But, but this, is, this identity of the land is kind of key for this and central for this, for this son then to address him. And if, and if you've ever inherited anything, how's that work? Well, somebody has died and left you something. He was rightfully, he would have been a, a rightful uh, heir to this stuff that the father had. Except the father's still alive. And what he's doing is saying, I want my stuff now. In order for this father to do this, um, he's, he's going to, could, could he do this? Would he do this? In this, in this, um, in this setting, before, before I get to that, let me, let me talk about a, the portion which he would have received. So the concept is that the older uh, heir would receive double portion. So in this case, it appears that there are two heirs. There's an older brother and a younger brother. The older brother would have had, so there are thirds. There are three-thirds. So the older brother gets two-thirds. The younger, the younger brother gets one-third. And so um, if this father were to grant this, he's got to do something to come up with this third to give this son. 
this sad note about this, this would have been a shock to these Jewish people's ears that he would ask, uh, and, and, and that the, 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 the request is like a very brazen request. And I don't know how, to, I want to give us another example to relate it to, and I just don't know what that would be. Because he's really saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I really want your stuff very badly, but I'm tired of you, actually, and I want to leave your house. I'm tired of you telling me what to do. I'm tired of you having a curfew on me. I'm tired of you having expectations of me. I need to be free. I need to be a free man, but I want your stuff so I can go be free. This would have been a, a, a very disrespectful thing to even ask. But, but the father's response is what comes next. So we're, I think we're still in 12. And, and simply the response is, and he divided his property between them. This is craziness. The dad is still alive. The sons are still alive. Yet, and, and, this, and this would have been unthinkable for this father to grant this request. In the Old Testament, there's a, uh, there's a story of a stoning of a rebellious son. That's a hard story to find how holiness of God works in that. But, and, and, it, and it hurts our ears, and, and I, I really shouldn't have even let into that, because it really should take me about 30 minutes to now calm you down to say, okay... This, this he says is that could that possibly be right? How could that be God's intention? And, and it would take me 30 minutes to soothe you into believing that God's holy enough that we have offended him by being rebellious and not listening to our parents. And so the parents would have tried and tried and tried and tried and the child continues to be rebellious. And so they take him to the city gate and the and this father would actually participate in the stoning of this rebellious son. That's harsh. But this is what was prescribed for those who were rebellious, who could not get in line. This is the mentality. But what does this father do? And in my opinion, this fits this son. We don't know the history. We don't know the story. All we have is what we have. But as opposed to kindly dividing the stuff and giving the son the stuff, stoning would have been more like what should have happened. It's that kind of reaction. So, another shock, the, the Jews who are hearing this, the Jewish people who are hearing this, the scribes and the Pharisees are shocked in hearing this because of the son's request. But they're even more shocked at the father's response, that he actually does it. Who would do this? Nobody. Because now this thing that where this land is a piece of your identity has to be divided up and sold so that you can give this knuckleheaded son what he's asked for. As opposed to him waiting till I'm dead, I'm now going through, jumping through all kinds of hoops so I can give him his request. He does that. So he sells off his stuff, he gives it to his son. And then, and then we see that the, the younger brother, uh, what he does. And not, not many days later, and I, and I wanted to eliminate some verses and I can't really, so we're in 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. Took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine came, arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. And we're focusing on the return, which shifts in 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hands hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Mm, I will rise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. So this younger son who got what he asked for, which reminds me of Romans 1. Romans 1 says that God the Father gives us what we want. And this is how he pours out his wrath upon us. You're like, my desires of my heart... If I get those in my fallen state, they actually are leading to God pouring his wrath out on us. This is what's happened here. In the kindness of this father, he gives the, the, the child what he wants, and then the child abuses it. The child is driven to a place of beyond being humbled. He's humiliated. He, he needs something to do, so he gets hired as a hired hand to feed pigs. Jewish people and pigs did not mix. For this Jewish person to go and be the one who has to feed the pigs would be so humiliating. But it goes beyond that. He's looking at what the pigs are eating and saying, hmm, that looks pretty good, because I'm just starving to death. I wish I had what the pigs had. But there's something that comes back to him. and, and, And guilt starts to set in. And he's remembering the father's kindness to him all of his life. Of how the father provided. How the father provided for his servants. How the father provided for his other son. How the father provided for him. And he's being reminded of this because he's separated from it. Somebody I met one time talked about, and he was probably quoting a book, uh, but I don't know. He was talking about the echo of Eden. This is what it reminds me of. In, we are made in God's image. So we can be running hard and long after what it is our hearts desire, which could lead us further and further away from God and more and more into sin. But all the while, there's this thing in us that says, this is not where I need to be. This is not giving me what I was looking for. There's this echo of Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God had this thing that was perfect for man to live in, all the lush food he could want. And so there's this echo of Eden in us that longs for this peace and then this communion with God the Father. And we try to fill that need, that desire, with all these other things. That's what this young son did. But this father's impression in his mind, in his heart, in his conscience, brought him to himself. He knew that his father was good. He knew that his father wanted the best for him. His best hope was to be remorseful enough that he could be received back into the family as a servant. And so he gathers himself up and he heads back home. 
Look with me in verse 20. We're going to see the Father's lavish grace. It says, And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What is interesting here is this word prodigal, according to Webster's Dictionary, it means reckless, wasteful, lavish spending. We, we're familiar with the one who's gone off and come back, and we use it that way a lot. And then prodigal was used to describe the reckless way that the younger son spent what he had. Tim Keller says that this word prodigal could as easily be, and rightfully be, attributed to God and his grace, this picture of grace that in this story, this father is a picture of God receiving back the lost one and then pouring out in a reckless manner his lavish grace on this son. What kind of return on my investment do I get when I'm pouring out? That's what enters in my head. This is not what is entering into his head. He just keeps pouring out. He already poured out to give him what he had. He comes back. Now he's pouring out even more. I think for me, the piece that is the turning point in this story, in this uh, whole section, 11 through 32, is this line that says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the, the father was looking for him. While he was a long way off, this dignified old man, Jewish leader of the community, a dignified man, a landowner, one who is highly respected, is looking for him. And from a distance, he sees him coming. You you can just imagine. Is that him? I see something. It looks like him. And then he does this very weird thing. He takes his robe and he pulls it up and shoves it down his belt so his legs can move. And he runs to the sun. And he grabs him and hugs him. Folks, this is not what old, dignified Jewish men did. Little boys, little girls, even women sometimes would run and show their legs while running. Old, dignified Jewish men did not run. Again, for the Jews to hear this, their mind is blown. How could you receive him? How would you, how would you lower yourself in such a standard? But he did not care about what good manners said. 
he hikes this robe up, tucks it into his belt, and takes off running after his son. He was looking for him. While the son was on his way back, this, this dad was waiting for his return. He was anxious to see him. The boy comes, and as he hugs him, he kisses him. The boy is giving him his rehearsed speech, and the dad interrupts him. He's telling him, he's not, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I have sinned against you. And the dad starts giving orders to the servants. Go and get the robe. Go and get the ring. Go and get the sandals. He's like, none of that. I'm not hearing of you. I'm not hearing of who you were. He's ready to identify himself as the lost son. He's ready to identify himself as that one who uh, betrayed his father, betrayed his brother, betrayed his family. But this father says, I'm not ready to hear from you, and you're not calling yourself a servant. You're calling yourself my son. I'm going to put this robe on you, which which signifies that you are part of the family. I'm going to put these clothes on you to let you know that you are not outside the family, but you are inside the family, that you are highly favored, that you are loved. And so he does. Then he yells for that fatted calf to be slaughtered. And this is not something they did. Every time we gather, we try to burn up something on the grill. We're used to this kind of food. This is a rare thing in this time. They wouldn't eat meat hardly ever. The fatted calf would be the last thing that would be, would, that would be slaughtered. This is a prized possession only for the most important kind of celebration would this thing be slaughtered. But that's what this is. So he says, let's slaughter that calf. And then there's a celebration. Much like this pattern that we'd seen in the other two parables. This is a picture of how God graciously accepts us as sinners freely into his arms. And then he makes us part of the family. He welcomes us in and clothes us with robes of righteousness so that we know that we belong to him. He now calls us sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are not known by who we were or what we did. We are known by our relationship to him, and we live into that. I'll have more to say in that regard. But let's look in 25. We're going to look at the older brother's rebellion. The one that gets ignored. The one that we don't see, perhaps. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. In 25 here, he was in the field. What was he doing? He was working. He was not loafing. This older son was not loafing. He was a busy at work. Tired from his day's worth of work, and he's headed back into the field, and he hears music and dancing. 26. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But this older son, 28 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? This older brother, he's angry. He's furious. He comes back from being this hard worker out in the fields, and he comes in to see the party of a lifetime going on for this younger brother who betrayed the family. His rebellious comments here, his refusal to go in, reveals his hard-heartedness. This reveals how he, too, loved the father for his stuff or his position in the family. So, essentially, his stuff. So, whether it's material or his position because of his relation to He didn't love the father for the father. He loved him for his stuff. He loved him for him. He wants rewarded for his efforts. He wants rewarded for his goodness. He wants rewarded for his righteousness. And frankly, he sees this as being an unfair treatment that you're pouring this lavish grace upon this one who betrayed us And you haven't done anything for me. Now I'm mad at you because I deserve this and he doesn't. This is is what he's saying. But then to make matters worse, the father's leaving the party to go plead with the son. But will the son come in? Or will he continue to disrespect his father? In each of these other parables of the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, that all these things are following the same pattern, but there's something missing here. And, 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 I, and I, I want to caveat, okay, yes, the father was looking for the son to return, and then he did go to him to greet him, but this is like down the path. It's like you've got to be as far as you can see. But the son was gone for some time. In the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the coin, there was a, a diligent looking. There was a seeking out. Where, where is that in this story? This is the job of the older son. A good older son with a right heart. Not one who is good morally only, but also has a good heart. Would have said, Dad, I'm going to go find that son. I'm going to go find my brother. I will bring him back. I will seek. I will find. I will return. Then we will rejoice. This is the job of the older brother. But he doesn't want to have anything to do with this younger brother. Again, let's go back, if we would. Let's visit the, the setting where the story is going on. So Jesus has been addressing the younger brother, meaning the, scribe, or the, meaning the Pharisees, I mean, shoot, the, the tax collectors and sinners, the younger brother, the one who has gone, who, who knows then he sinned and he's coming in. 
the tax collectors and sinners equal the younger brother. And we described last week how the Pharisees and the scribes, and I got that right, they didn't want to have anything to do with the tax collectors and sinners. They're the older brother. They're the younger brother. So he's, he's turning and he's addressing these older brothers sitting around the table and describing this great discrepancy of how this older brother wouldn't love the younger brother enough to go searching for him. Scathing. Again, this is, this is, this is in-your-face stuff. This whole thing, he's addressing the religious who would not acknowledge the irreligious people. He's welcoming, welcoming the irreligious in, and then he is pleading with the religious people that they soften their hearts and turn to him. And he's, he, Jesus, is pleading with them. He is begging them. This story shows us that there are two ways that we think that it comes human, it, it comes naturally to the human to try to seek a relationship with God. And one is that God has set me free and I need to be a God unto myself. I just need to be the free man. I get to go and do what I will choose. What's right for me? This, and this does not fit our culture today. There's this thing where I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and boo on you if you're telling me anything different. This is where we live. We live among a bunch of younger brothers. No to God, I'll, I'm doing fine by myself, thank you. Then there's the other side, which would be the religious. You know, Christianity is one of the things to non-church people that's known as those who hate gay people. Okay, that's, okay. that's not in our belief system. It's not who we are. But yet, that's how we are perceived to be. We're perceived to be the religious people. We're perceived to be the older brother. And then too often, this description becomes accurate because people want to rely on their own good works, and we're meant to do that. Both ways are wrong. The younger brother's wrong. The older brother's wrong. The younger brother represents us one way. The older brother represents the other way. The older brother wants to declare his own righteousness. So the religious people want to declare their own righteousness. The irreligious have no righteousness to stand on. And as they've turned away from God, they're not looking for it. But it turned into themselves, and they're deciding what's going to be good for them. But this thing of forgiveness and this receiving back in, it comes with a cost. And this story shows this high cost of God's grace. Yes, it's free. It's free to run to him. But then there's this cost of following him. There's forgiveness. Anytime, we, we have issues with forgiveness. Somebody offends me, I have issues. I have a hard time forgiving them. I'm thinking you do too. I'm not alone. And we have this thing in us that, no, I don't want forgiveness. I want them to pay. But the reality is, is there's a cost to this forgiveness, and I am the one, if I'm doing the forgiving, that has to pay that cost. I have to get over all my issues 
and say, okay. And, and the person could still be a jerk. But I have to get in me the capacity to let it go and not allow that to control me and forgive them genuinely and move forward. When this story, this cost, it's not just the father who's bearing the cost. In this story, it's the older son as well. So we've just discussed great big estate, split into thirds. Two-thirds is what's left. One-third's gone. How crazy is this? I, I'm with the older brother a lot. That ain't right. How could you do that? Now I've got to, if you're going to receive him back in and this forgiveness is going to be good, now I have to split my two-thirds with him. I've got to split my inheritance with him again. But whose stuff is this? It's God's. But we tend to do that. We're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. But we look at things through what's too little, my lack, what's less, not God's plenty. This is a hard lesson in this, but it's showing us it's costly grace. So the father pleads, verse 31, he says, And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the story's ending. Well, will this older brother come in? Will the older brother be moved? What's going to go on here? Will he be convinced? Will his heart change? Will he receive the gospel? Jesus is making this plea to these religious people right in front of the irreligious people to say, will you receive them? Will you enter in? Will you change your heart? Which brother are you? Which one do you relate to? Which one do you see yourself in? Are you one who wants God's blessing to go and do whatever it is you desire without any submission to him, without following in his ways? Or are you the one who feels like you deserve some recognition, some attaboys, girls, because you've been so good? Do you think he should be celebrating your goodness? Do you think that he owes you a share of the inheritance? Do you think that he owes you a place in the family? What is it that you need to repent of? Is it your unrighteousness? Or is it your righteousness? That that you've claimed for yourself. See, this is the heart of the gospel and the, and the story is telling because it leaves you hanging here and it's this direct plea to those who are religious to change their ways. So there's the religious, there are the irreligious, and they're both wrong. And then there's this middle way. You see, friends, we have a better older brother. This is what Jesus is described as for us. So we're, we're, we're not, we're not going to get there on our own by our own good works. We don't, we don't bridge the gap between the holy God by our good works. So we're not, we can't be the older brothers and we can't be the younger brothers who are doing whatever we want to do when we want to do it. 
we have an older brother, this great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, who died for us while we were yet sinners, which proves God's love toward us. He knew that we couldn't come to him. So he does the work. He is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd of those lost sheep. He's the one who sought you out when you went astray. He's the one who crossed the ravines and went through the valleys and got into the briar thicket where you were stuck. And he pulls you out of that miry clay, sets you free, binds your wounds and puts you on his shoulders and brings you back to safety. This is our Jesus. But then his grace is free to you. You just turn to him. And he's ready to hike up that robe and run to you and receive you. This grace, you cannot earn it. It's a matter of receiving what he has done. And when we do, the older brother himself is going to clothe us with new garments. These robes of righteousness. And then we share in his inheritance. God the Father calls us joint heirs with Christ. As we come to faith in Him, He shares what He has with the Father with us. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. And this is not all. Then, as He's brought us into the family, we celebrate in this glorious way at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we have that same pattern, this piece that's missing out of this story is Jesus himself. The person can't do it. The older brother can't do it. The younger brother can't do it. And so Jesus himself, God himself, comes in the form of flesh and goes and saves his people. And then he brings them back into the family. And then we celebrate together around this wedding feast of the Lamb, which when we take communion, it's a piece of joining into that even in the here and now, that already but not yet. The question for us, for you, is will you simply trust him? Will you trust him for his righteousness? Will you rely on him for taking the penalty for your sin? Will you rely on him for covering that cost of forgiveness? Will you rely on him for his righteousness and re- release your and feel the release of that so that you don't have to earn your own will you trust in him in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit let us pray